Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brand. In this episode, it's time to chant the Qua. It's SST 163, The Descendants Liveage LP. Love The Descendants on this show, just like everyone else who's listening. And Brent, we've got a special surprise guest. Yeah, Stefan Edgerton's on the show. Right on. Made it in just under the wire, and it is one heck of an interview. So happy to have uh, Stefan on. And if I'm not mistaken, now that we've had Milo, Bill, and Stefan. One to go. Come on, Carl. You're yep. next, buddy. Yep. Hall raker, Carl. Let's do it, bro. <laughs> Anyways, uh, before we get into it, Brent, why don't you hit us with some spiels? All right. I have a new segment, Ryan. Kind oh, do tell. Do kind tell. Of. Kind of. It's called Recommend Roundup What's Up on Base Edition. Uh, okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, okay. Cuz Tomato Bako? Yep, that's pretty darn close. Okay. As good as I could do it. That's pretty cool, hey? Yeah, 2014 Bleeding Heart Records. This is the Watt Proj with Sam Duke of the Go Team. Uh, they apparently met in 2006 in Australia when both the Stooges and the Go Team were playing at the Big Day Out Festival. Here's a quote I found from Sam, actually. He says, Mike was being loud and friendly, dousing his festival food with homemade Watt chili sauce straight out of it, out of his chili belt holster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can, I can see that for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's really cool. Watt does a fair amount of the vocals. It's noisy, like in the sonic youth kind of sense of the word. Yeah. It's experimental and arty. Really dug that one. Yeah, it's neat. The Hand to Man Band. You Are Always ah. on Our Minds. 2012, Post Consumer is the label. John Dietrich of a bunch of bands, probably most notably Deerhoof and Colossomite. Yep. yep. Tholem McDonis, also of a zillion bands, but of Sigati, a, re a related recommend from you that we spoke about last week. And then Tim Barnes on drums, also of many man bands and projects, including one in the Sonic Youth SYR series, actually. And then Watt on bass. Easily the most avant-garde and experimental of the three releases I'm mentioning. It's jazzy at times, abstract, some ambient parts. It's challenging, but it's a cool listen. Yep, for sure. It definitely fits on my Watts on bass shelf. Hidden Rifles Across the Neighborhoods, 2017 Total Life Society is the label. Now we're talking. Easily my fave of the three Watt-related recommends. Uh, quite the super group, actually. Jim Sykes on drums of Parts and Labor. Mark Shippey, again, a bunch of bands, but most notably, uh, probably U.S. Maple. Matthew Waskovich of Scarcity of Tanks. That's a band that comes out a lot I think probably mostly in association with some of these Watt projects. Uh, he handles vocals. And then Norman Westberg of Swans on guitar. And who's on bass, Ryan? Watt. That's right. Noisy, like Swan, Sonic Youth action, kind of jagged post-punk, great vocals, rock and stuff. Three great recommends, Ryan. Yeah, man. Okay, then on my my ongoing segment that I've started called three on the tree. That's th these are three albums on the SS tree. 
Okay. Oh man, I wonder if you're gonna scoop me because I've got a three on the tree contribution this app. You do. I do, man. Go for it though. Okay. It's all good. Fair game, me man. Fair okay. game, me. Scrapyard. Sex is sex, and scrap is spelt with a K. Yes. Uh, 1991 alternative tentacles. Yes. Uh, I don't know anything about most of the people in this band, uh, but East Bay Ray played guitar on this EP and also uh, produced it. And the drummer is Andy Caps, who was fresh off of the final Angst album, Cry for Happy, which we'll be getting to sometime about a year from now, actually. Uh, it's a bit Talking Heads-esque, like a bit funky. The title track is super killer. It's actually pretty polished, but it's a bit of a lost Alternative Tentacles gem, I would say. Yep, you betcha. Okay, Negative Land, Live Brain. This is one that came out last year that we failed to mention, actually, on our year-end roundup. Recorded on their Euro Tour in 2019 for their tour, uh, for their True-False Tour. It was a download offered to fans who helped fund last year's excellent The World Will Decide. Really great live negative land. Came with a PDF with photos from the tour and like set lists. Uh, negative land is still vital, man, and they prove it with every release. And then my third one on the tree is Chris D. Love Cannot Die. 1995 Sympathy for the Record Industry. I've been trying to track this down for a while now. It's kind of hard to find. It's a Chris D solo album that he did following the second breakup of the Flesh Eaters. Many of the players on here are from that era of, of the Flesh Eaters. Uh, he talks in his book, A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die, about this era. He was really struggling to get off heroin and get clean at this time. He says they are all downbeat, morbid love songs, once again walking the tightrope between transcending rejection on the one hand and wallowing in bitter self-pity on the other. Just check the song titles, Ryan. Drifter's Blood. Meaningless World. History is Made at Night. Poison Fang Society, which is also the name of Chris's publishing company, actually. And also the song Mind Fever Soul, or sorry, Mind Fever Soul Fire is on here, which they uh, re-recorded for the forthcoming Divine Horseman record due out this spring. So if you're into Chris's stuff in The Flesh Eaters and Divine Horseman, this is an essential album yeah it's a good one and you know since we had an episode where christy was singing i have since listened to a band um that i'm a fan of and i've got all their records and it only hit me for the first time then though about how similar the vocals are or maybe not similar but how this particular singer maybe was influenced by christy i don't know but it's a band called the Broken Jug. They put out some LPs on Glitterhouse Records. Check out The Broken Jug and tell me if you think that the vocals kind of sound Chris D-esque. Okay. Will do. Ryan, uh, just very quickly before I pass it over to you, would you mind if we just dipped our toe into the comp zone? <laughs> I'm going up to my ankles, bro. I bet you are, because I'm almost certain that you have this comp. 1986, Positive Force Records, Another Shot for Bracken. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the record label run by Kevin Seconds of Seven Seconds. It's a really cool, eclectic comp. It's got some hardcore on it, like Flag of Democracy, uh, Dissonance, 
Outcry, Youth of Today, Scream, the band does this weird, funky cover of a song from 1970 uh, by a band called Sugarloaf. The song's called Green-Eyed Lady. There's a band on here called Short Dogs Grow, a San Francisco band whose name I've seen pop up recently, actually, while sourcing gig posters for some of our recent episodes. Like, I saw them on a poster for Sister Double Happiness. Yeah. And one for The Descendants, actually, on the final tour. Uh, they had stuff on Rough Trade, so I'm, this song's on here is good, uh, similar to kind of early Soul Asylum. Apparently, uh, they were name-dropped regularly by Sam I Am as a big influence. Short hmm. Dogs Grow. Verbal Assault does a ambient dub reggae track on here that really reminds me of like The Clash's Bank Robber or something like that. There's a band on here from Edmonton, Alberta, Ryan. Entirely Distorted. Whoa. Yeah, featuring future members of SNFU and the Wheat Chiefs. No way. Okay, so who would that be? Uh, Wouldn't be Kurt, would it? N- on bass? No. It's the drummer, I think. Okay. Yeah, no, Kurt, was, Kurt wasn't in the Wheat Chiefs. Rob was. That's the dude. Pretty sure. No way. Oh, I got to check that out. You, I totally you missed have, that. Well, you have them on that It Came From The Pit comp. They're on there. What's the name? Entirely Distorted is the band. Oh my gosh. Yep. Well, I got to I gotta get back into my comp zone, obviously. You need to look them up in, your, uh, in one of your old school books there. <laughs> what do you mean? An old school book? Like made with paper? Yeah. One of those. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're out of print punk comp. Oh, yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. I'm just giving you a hard time because it's so easy. Okay. Uh, the Brigade, which I believe is an offshoot of Youth Brigade. I would say the Brigade is what it's it's like a mid period Youth Brigade, right? Okay. Like they they stopped being Youth Brigade. They, then they were the Brigade. Then they became Youth Brigade again. Hmm. I think maybe. Okay. A White Flag's awesome track, Suicide King, is on here. When One Falls by Seven Seconds, a different version than the one on Ourselves. Five Balls of Power from New Hampshire, future members of Dropkick Murphys, The Bruisers, and East Side, Lower East Side Stitches. A couple crappy covers, honestly, from Scram and Adrenaline OD. A band called Care Unit that I couldn't find anything out about at all. They kind of reminded me of D.I., Hmm. A band called Action Figure. Again, couldn't really find much out about them. Most interesting, The Sins, which was Bill Bartell, a.k.a. Pat Fear of White Flag, and this guy, uh, Randy Stain, and then Tony Fate, future main man of the Bell Rays. Right on. Yeah. So, yeah, lots to dive into there. Some of that stuff is on my list of shit I need to track down and hear more from. Yeah. No, you definitely took me to the comp zone school there. I need to revisit some of my old comps. That's the point, man. That's the whole point of the comp zone. What do you got for me? Okay, I've got a watch spiel and a three on the tree spiel. Okay, what's up on bass? Totally, totally copying you. No, actually, Watt is not on bass. He (laughs) is on a podcast called Big Ego Tapes. It's the Chris Mm. Schlarb podcast. He's the dude from Psychic Temples, who I've, I've mentioned on the podcast before he does those uh cool psych records with a bunch of guest stars including uh mike watt 
And then the last one, of course, had guest stars for each of the four sides of the double LP, one of which was... Mike Watt? The Dream nope. Syndicate? There you go. Yeah. There you go. Dream Syndicate. Good save. Um, anyways, Watt is on Chris's podcast, his recent one, Big Eagle Tapes. It's cool. It's like an hour long, but it's very much the two of them riffing on the philosophy of collaborating with different musicians. It's a really mm -hmm. cool listen. It's it's a different topic than uh, you hear Watt talk about. You know, like he talks about Minutemen, like it's very brief, you know. It's it's really about all these other projects that are not as well known. He even talks about when he played bass on that Kelly Clarkson record, which was, a, you know, a bit of a trip. And uh, it's cool. You should check that out. Big Ego Tapes. Yeah, that whole podcast is recorded on cassette tape. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, all right. And then here's my first contribution to Three on the Tree brand, 2021 edition. Awesome. Yeah, man. So 2021 is not going to completely suck because there are at least three more SST-related releases coming. The first one is the new record by Down By Law coming out called Lonely Town. It's actually out now, I believe. You can order it on Bandcamp. 13 tracks. Dave Smalley, his output over the last four years, I'm not sure he's put out as much music as he has in the last four years, yeah. you know, in, in such quick succession earlier on in his career. Like three or four different bands, and they're just one after another. And they're great because, you know, Dave's a great songwriter. Dave's a great singer. He has great musicians in all the bands he plays with. So check that out. Mm -hmm. And I hope, I hope once this bullshit plague is over, Dave is going to tour uh, with one of his combos. I'd love to check him out. Also on the tree, a new single by the band Dumb Numbers, which is, uh, it's a single, came out on Joyful Noise Records. That's the combo led by Adam Harding and includes a rotating lineup with Dale Crover, David Yao and others. But this one includes Lou and Murph from Dinosaur Jr. on this single. And it's called Scars. It's kind of cool. The The single is on this lathe cut single. It doesn't really sound that good. It's one of those things where it's better to listen to the digital track because it's on this lathe cut single thing. And then uh, last but not least, Dinosaur Jr. finally announced their new record coming out in April. Sweep it into space. April 23rd on Jag Jaguar cannot wait for that one i need some new dino really really bad and uh the single that they released i'm on it it's good yeah i i checked it out too it is good did i read right that uh it was produced by kurt vile this record yeah and he he played on some tracks like a 12 string and stuff like that i didn't read it a ton like you know i i've i've said this before i kind of like i try not to read up yeah. on it i just want to like order it or go pick it up and read about it when i'm listening to it so but i did kurt vile was all over the announcements this past week you're right and apparently like because of the plague the collaboration got cut short and jay just had to uh pinch hit for the rest and i'm sure it sounds awesome yeah man that's all i got is it time to chant the qua come on man qua qua isn't this ridiculous no man qua qua history lesson part one so, hey, before we get into a bit of a spiel before Stephen, I, I wanted to give you a quick pre-liveage spiel, and it it's all about edge. Okay, Brent? We talked about edge 
before on the show, but I was actually, funnily enough, this week reading, uh, well, I finished this book, the Los Angeles Flipside Fanzine number 54 10-year anniversary issue. It's basically like a best of of the Flipside fanzine from from issues 1 to 50. And it's, of course, loaded with tons of interviews with bands that, you know, we talk about on the show here. But there's a quick idge spiel by Bill in this interview. Yeah, so it goes like this. Uh, Al, who's doing the interview, I assume it's like Al Flipside or whatever, he's going... What's the thing with Idge? And Tony says, it's just something that caught on. And then Bill says, when I was in 10th grade in my trigonometry class, we used to call stuff like notebook Idge, pencil Idge, homework Idge. And we got into it and I started naming my songs like that was my first song, My Idge. So I called it My Idge. And My Idge, of course, is on this awesome liveage record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've been a bit all over the place with the descendants due to all of the new Alliance reissues, but chronologically this release follows up on episode 112, 1987's all record. I'm assuming most people listening to this have heard our episode on that, but uh, if not, or even if you did, you should really press pause right now and go back and give it a listen because we spoke to Milo for that one. Uh, And he brought us up to speed to where we're at right now, which uh, was at the time to be the Descendants' final tour. So chronologically, Ryan, they, this is what I was able to suss out. And we probably mentioned this in in that episode a little bit. Um, But in January of 87, they played with the Love Dolls and Lawndale at the Anti-Club and then they kicked off the first leg of their tour on February 12th at the Whiskey in LA uh, with an 8.30 show featuring the Love Dolls and Crash Bang Crunch Pop, which is the band Ron Reyes formed in Vancouver when he moved there. Right. Uh, it ran until April 10th. Some of the cool lineups I picked out are a March 5th show at the Hung Jury Pub in Washington, D.C. with Honor Roll and the Electric Love Muffins. March 8th at City Gardens in Trent, New Jersey with Gangrene, Dag Nasty, and Half-Life. Wow. March 13th at the Ritz in New York with DOA headlining and also on the bill Firehose and DC3, which oh. we, ta- we talk about that in the interview. Wow, man. Yeah. Uh, they also played with Carl's old band, The Bad Yodelers, Moving Targets, Oily Bloodmen. On April 9th at a show in Berkeley they record a show that will later be released as SST 205, the live album Hallraker. Now, Discogs lists the release date of the All record as March 1st, 1987. So it comes out on this leg of the U.S. tour, which, as I mentioned, ends on April 10th at Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach with Wasted Youth, Doggy Style, and Crash Bang Crunch Pop. Uh, They then turn right back around and head out on the Fine All Tour, which runs May 30th through July 24th. MIA are on all of the dates. Doughboys are on several, and Henry Rollins is on several also. I believe this is the Hot Animal Machine era Rollins, so like pre-Rollins band. Ah. I want to talk about MIA for a minute, Ryan, because I don't think we've really talked about that band much. 
they were, or still are, I believe, an Orange County band. Um, and if all you know is the Murder in a Foreign Place LP or the Lost Boys comp, uh, both on Alternative Tentacles, both amazing, by the way, you really should check out their two, or two later albums that they would have been touring on at this point. 85's Notes from the Underground and 87's After the Fact. I feel like MIA is a band, like you never really hear them talked about and yeah. all, the, all of their stuff just rules so hard. Yeah. Speaking of Flipside, I think that last one after the fact was on Flipside Records. I think I read about it this week as well in the in the book. Yeah. Have you heard those records? I have not heard those. Oh. Uh, not, not the last two that you mentioned. You will love them, man. Like... You know, their early hardcore stuff is still really catchy and definitely, you know, a big influence on that Orange County sound. Yeah. Like, as big as Bad Religion or The Adolescents or whatever. Uh, but they were a perfect band for this tour. Like, if you hear those two records, like, you'll see that they fit in perfectly with The Descendants and The Doughboys. So, coincidentally, this listener, Joe Wolf, reached out after our Bad Brains episode where we were talking about that show in Florida. Right. So That was that was a live broadcast on the college TV. Yeah, so he says it was in actually in Daytona Beach for spring break. Uh, and he was there at that show. MTV was bringing in bands like Los Lobos, The Fix... Um, he was in high school and he and his friends would skip after lunch and go watch these shows at that band shell, uh, which has been there, he says, since the 1940s. Anyways, he and I got to talking and he brought up a show Milo mentioned from this tour uh, when we when we had Milo on the show. It was June 14th at Penrods in Daytona Beach, Florida. Henry was headlining and it was De- Descendants, MIA, Doughboys and Short Dogs Grow. Uh, he said the stage had chicken wire around it, like in the Blues Brothers movie. Oh, yeah. And it was right on the beach on the bottom floor of a hotel in some kind of storage space uh, converted into a show space. He said Henry climbed up on the chicken wire and creepy crawled around like a spider ripping down the wire. The club was very short-lived, he says. Maybe a summer, lots of drugs. <laughs> he said coke and skinheads were not a good mix. and then at one of the final shows of the tour on july 7th at first ave in minneapolis with mia and the doughboys as support uh, they recorded this album and released it as liveage and it came out on november 4th 1987 on lp cd and cassette and ryan as you'll hear in the interview, as a testament to the band's amazing work ethic and their quest for all, All Roy Says was released on cruise in March of 88, and they hit the road with the Doughboys and Chemical People that very same month. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually, uh, there's an all tie-in when we get to the Dead Wax on this record. Nice. Yeah. Wait for it. Wait for it. Let's throw it over to Stefan. All right, we're Joined on the podcast today by Stefan Edgerton. Stefan, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Right on. So I'm wondering if you can take me back to uh, growing up. Now, did you grow up in Salt Lake City? I did grow up in Salt Lake City, yes. Um, I wasn't born there, but I grew up there. I lived there from, I think, three till till 
20. Okay. <laughs> sure. Nice long time. Yeah. When did you start playing guitar? Was it guitar first or drums? It was guitar first. And, and I, um, I started at age nine. Um, I started on drums, you know, probably six months later, just, mm. you know, learning basic stuff. And granted, I never, in, in the beginning, I didn't, you know, pursue them with the great vigor that, you know, that maybe some people do. But um, by 16, I was, you know, completely embedded in it, had a lot of songs under my belt and played um, at a local shopping mall when I was starting when I was 11, um, doing, you know, just cover songs and that right. kind of thing, acoustic guitar and singing. And, and uh, so that was kind of, that was what I did in the beginning. You know, I right. wanted to sing and play guitar. So. And then drums, and then, I don't know if you know this, but Carl Alvarez is also from Salt Lake City. Yeah. Yeah, I did um, know that. So I want to get into well, so, your and Carl's musical journey together in a minute here, but before that started, did you, did you? well, you just mentioned that you played in bands at a shopping mall. Uh, this is pre-punk for you anyways, I'm assuming. Very much so, yes. Yeah. I, yeah, I started when I was 11, and I guess punk was probably starting to happen you know, in, in New York or London or something. But the, my first exposure to punk rock was actually in Time magazine. I guess there was some some small article that I read about it, and that was the first time I'd ever heard of, uh, you know, heard that, ex- well, not heard the expression. The funny thing is the first time I heard the expression was I was in a pawn shop that I used to go to all the time to stare at their guitars and so on. And there was a poster um, with a picture of Sylvain Sylvain mm-hmm. playing um, an Ibanez flying V and, uh, from the New York dolls. And, and I asked the guy behind the counter, I was like, what is this? And he said, that's a punk rock band. And that was the first time I ever heard that expression. So that's (laughs) kind of funny. That's where, that's where that happened. But, uh, and then, and then in, in this time magazine article shortly after that, but I didn't hear punk rock for the first time till I was probably 13, 12, 13, somewhere in there. And at first, I it didn't, I I didn't take to it immediately. I was at the time that it really connected with me. I was actually pretty much into into jazz fusion music mm. and prog rock and that kind of stuff. I was into the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and Jeff Beck, and um, I like Yes. And so, I, you know, that was the kind of stuff I was listening to right. um, when punk rock hit. I think punk rock connected with me in the as a person, <laughs> you know, more, um, the sort of need to, uh, uh, get it all out there and to, you know, maybe strike out in some way that was, you know, not typical. Right. Um, more the ethos. You know, I, maybe. I, I'm not an angry person really. So, I mean, <laughs> I can't say that I was walking around pissed off at the world. That's not what I was like at all, but, right. you know, but it was, uh, I didn't have anywhere to, you know, I fit in particularly well. And so this, uh, it's not like I found a group of people that took a little while, but um, this whole idea appealed to me, and uh, and I bought the never mind the bollocks record, right. and that was the record that really you know kind of bowled me over when I finally connected to it and listened to it, and from then on it was just punk rock. After right. that, I didn't. Well, I say that it's funny because it was punk rock, but you know not being a coastal person, you know, being kind of somewhat locked culturally uh a little bit in utah punk rock encompassed more than you know than punk rock per se you know than just that music punk rock probably encompassed 
everything from you know new wave and kind of modern rockabilly second wave ska um and i loved all of it kind of all at once so for me you know my punk rock journey includes the b-52s and devo and gary newman and the stranglers and richard hell and the voidoids and the talking heads you know it's a kind of a, a broad swath and actually the los angeles stuff i didn't hear that till a little bit later Mm-hmm. Oddly, I, the first stuff I heard was all, you know, was all New York, and 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 the UK. Right, that first wave stuff. Now, did you did you sell your King Crimson records? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, not no, but they did kind of fall by the wayside. I mean, I would pull I would pull that stuff out once in a while, but not not much. Once that door was open you know there was just so much new stuff and i was so excited about all of it i went crazy for all of it you know just uh um you know xtc or you know (laughs) generation x like you know just all kinds of all kinds of stuff there was just so much out there and it was so varied throbbing gristle you know like we and there there wasn't really much you could do except just kind of buy records and see what they were because there was no fanzines there was no internet there was no way to check it out all you could do is just buy it and see if you thought it was any good (laughs) and that was what i did i had a job and and i you know made made, you know as as a young guy um so all my money went into records and i just bought you know whatever i'd buy it because of the cover you know (laughs) Uh, and what about locally what was the were you getting into the was there a scene at that point in salt lake city there was we we had a really early scene which is kind of funny if you're thinking about it we we had punk rock bands we had spit and teeth um the boards the atheists there were there were uh, willie tidwell the no rods there were all these bands that popped up um you know probably i don't know 79 you know 79 i guess they were showing up so this is pre-hardcore even absolutely yeah hardcore we didn't even know what that was yet so so you know there were um you know my first band my very first band that could kind of cohesively play something that was worth hearing was was called the big fish and carl my you know my my best friend growing up you know we met when when i was when we were both in uh, junior high school in seventh grade and he didn't play anything yet. And the idea in the big fish was that eventually he would be the bass player, but that never really came to fruition um, until later for him. So this band sort of dissolved before that ever happened, but it was drums, guitar, keyboards, and vocals, kind of like the doors or something. Right. The music was absolutely, you know, new wave music. It was surfy stuff like kind of ventures inspired with you know fuzz pedals though and and there's no recordings of it we never did anything like Mm. that we just played a few shows but so you know we got to witness though all of that first wave of salt lake stuff pre-hardcore and um and we had one we had two people in town who were uh doing a great local radio show uh brad collins um who runs a store called Ranch Records to this day in Salt Lake City? That's a, that's been you know part of the, that that kind of punk rock world going back. Fuck, I don't know when he opened that. It was a long time ago though. Right. But but Brad had a radio show, and another one, Susan had a radio show, and between them, you heard the full birth of everything happening. Well, Brad went down to Los Angeles 
they must have been around 80, I guess. I'd, I'd love to I'd love to actually ask him exactly when this was. But while he was there, he heard the Go-Go's and, you know, germs and Black Flag. And he, he heard the hardcore stuff, the stuff that was happening in LA right. that we hadn't heard yet. And so he brought those records back and started playing them on his show. Mm-hmm. And the band that got me sort of interested in hardcore, I guess, if you could call it hardcore, was the Germs. Right. Um, that was the record that just blew it wide open for me. And another another friend bought Nervous Breakdown, which I responded to immediately. So from there out, it was buying, you know, Fear, and, you know, it was it was the L, the L A hardcore stuff, like, sure. you know, all of it, including including Orange County. I mean, I didn't know what the difference between Los Angeles and Orange County was, you know, living as a teenager in Salt Lake. I didn't know the difference. So for me, that would include adolescence, TSOL, middle class, right. you know, all of those bands, mm-hmm. and and so so I dove, you know, pretty heavily into that kind of more hardcore scene. And then at sixteen, I hitchhiked to Los Angeles. Because I wanted to go see Black Flag, who were then my kind of current favorite band. So I hitchhiked down there, and um, they were on their first U.S. tour, so I totally missed them. <laughs> but I saw, uh, this was spring of 1981, so I saw, um, you know, 45 Grave. Wow. I saw uh, all kinds of wild stuff. Johanna went. I saw the Suburban Lawns. I saw the Circle Jerks and China White and... Um, the crowd and, you know, just a a huge smattering of really cool bands over about a two month period of being a street urchin, just kind of living on the streets for a while there in LA. And then I came back to Salt Lake, you know, with quite a bit of knowledge of all these bands, you know, of of that stuff. And right after I got home, um, that same guy, Brad, my friend who had the radio show, Mm -hmm. got a hold of a cassette called the future is bright ahead, which was a joint cassette, done by SST Records and Posh Boy Records. And that is the first place I heard The Descendants. Ah, yeah. Um, uh, they, they, there were actually mixed, there were a couple songs that ended up on the Fat EP, and I think they weren't even the Fat EP mixes. They were different mixes. In fact, it was before, if I understand this right, I think Bill said that, it, that that actually happened before um, the Fat EP came out. So I didn't hear Ride the Wild first, and I didn't know about Ride the Wild for some time. But but I immediately loved those songs on on um, on the Future Looks Bright. And so when when the um, you know when the Fatty P became available, I got that. And then of course my Rose to College right afterwards, right. and that immediately rose to be one of my very favorite all time records, and still is. I still listen to my Rose to College. <laughs> I love it so much. So yeah. Okay, when does the Massacre guys come into the picture? I, I, it seems like maybe they were already going and then you entered into the band. Is that, is that how that played yeah, out? Yeah, Massacre guys, Massacre guys, so that was while I was still in high school. Um, and um, my friend uh, who I mentioned who had bought Nervous Breakdown, his name's John. John, myself... Um, and his brother, we would, uh, you know, not go to school as we should have. And we would go to John's house and we would write these ridiculous songs. I would play drums and John would play the piano and, uh, his, his little brother, Jamie would sing. And we started writing this little batch of songs and then John would overdub guitar parts over them. And so in the, in that band, 
it was kind of just a goofy thing. We just, you know, it was kind of ridiculous, but, but we, um, eventually sort of turned into a, what well, we did turn into a real band. And I guess the total timeline of that is actually five years and kind of happens right at the end of the Salt Lake, you know, just by, by then we, we all knew about the Los Angeles bands and certainly right. massacre guys were more influenced by, you know, the hardcore bands. And, uh, so we played, we played a lot. We played, you know, opening for tons, you know, everybody that came through Salt Lake for a long period there. We opened for everybody, Discharge, Dead Kennedys, and uh, a few times Dead Kennedys, TSOL. Anybody who came through, we ended up opening for them. Um, and that was a great list of bands, by the way, that we got to play with. No kidding. Very cool. And so that started, now, th- so bringing Carl back into it. Now, Carl had since the big fish had sort of, you know, fizzled out into whatever that was, he'd had this base lying around his house and he started picking it up and kind of figuring it out on his own. And he, and Carl is a, a hyper intelligent person. So, you know, things come fairly easy like that to him if he puts his mind to it. So he started figuring out how to play the bass and started learning to play along with records right. uh, that we had. So, we at, at a certain point we needed a bass player and of course he was the guy that we would get and so he came in um i guess he was 18 then and played bass with us for maybe the last you know the last two years two and a half years probably that the band was together so that's where the massacre guys kind of fit into it all and i left the massacre guys uh i discovered classical guitar and got kind of a kind of a bent to learn to do that that was the, my sort of you know <laughs> I'd, I'd been just completely immersed in, in punk rock all this time and then i i heard this incredible live recording of these two classical guitarists john williams and julian breen and i was absolutely blown away by this stuff and decided i wanted to learn to play classical guitar so i quit the band i sold all of my all of my gear and got a classical guitar and started taking lessons and shortly after that, I moved to Washington, D.C. Okay. So Carl was left without much, uh, you know, he started another band uh, with with some other friends of ours in town. And this was the Bad Yodelers? No, the, the Bad Yodelers were just some of our buddies. And Carl sang for the Bad Yodelers right. for a while. And he was very good at it. So, again, this is one of the things where Carl's just like, well, oh, I'll just go be good at this. You know, that's kind of how he is. Yeah. So. Because um, singing, uh, you know, none of us really knew that he was going to be good at that, but he turned out to be. So, so he was in this band called Pravda. Pravda was playing a show in Idaho, and Pravda was staying with a guy. If, I, if I've got my stories straight here, I'm pretty sure I do. He was staying with. Um, they were staying with a guy up there, um, and I wish I could remember the name of that band. It's a kind of a known. It's a it's a semi recognizable name if you knew the little the little independent bands from each of the kind of cities around. If you knew who Decroitson was, or, right. <laughs> you yep. know, or whatever, like you would know these guys too. But anyway, Carl's staying there, and Bill calls this guy who is a bass player um, and says, "Hey, we're looking for a bass player. Are you interested?" And this guy said, "I can't make that leap, but there's a guy here you really should talk to." Right. Puts Carl on the phone. So I'm living in D.C. I'm completely immersed in classical guitar. I don't even own an electric guitar. I have an amp sitting in my parents' basement. That's all I've got left from that, from that time in my life. And 
I'm fully into classical guitar. The only rock record that I bought during the year and four or five months, whatever, that I lived in D.C. was I Don't Want to Grow Up when it came out, which is just a funny, you know, other than that, I just bought classical records. But I bought that because I was so stoked on it. Anyway, so I caught wind that Carl had joined Descendants. Um, Carl, you know, Carl gets on the phone with Bill, goes down, they jam for a few days and, and decide to move forward. Um, when I called to congratulate Carl, I found out they don't have a guitar player either. And so I brushed up on the songs and went to California and played for, with them for a few days. So anyway, that <laughs> I just took you through my entire life. There we go. Yeah. Then I, then I joined, I joined the band. We, we jammed out for about three days and Bill asked if, um, if I wanted to join and Bill and Milo did. And, and so I did. And I think I've always felt that at the time it probably just kind of made sense. Bill and Milo were close friends. Carl and I were close friends. Right. It was a lot easier to, to, you know, get people with a, a musical language and you know carl and i had played together for a long time and we definitely had a, a way that we worked together still do and so i think bill and milo just went well this is cool these guys already know each other They're, you know it, it, it's not like just a completely untried weird thing these guys have a connection so it so it, it was a i think a pretty logical move for all of us and, was, and and for carl and i it was just awesome because you know we were such huge fans of Michael's college god we were crazy <laughs> about that record and the fatty beat yeah and grow up you know so the band's all living together at this point it was this in lamita yes yeah. yeah we basically we lived you know we i got out there i believe it was october of 86 we practiced for um, a couple weeks, a few weeks. And I think we'd probably already written most of, if not all of the descendants, all record. Mm -hmm. Um, by the time we left to do the last run of shows in 86 that had been booked with Doug and Ray originally, they were already booked, but the band fell apart. And so we, you know, we went ahead and did those shows. So we did a small run, um, around Thanksgiving, of of 86 and then started recording the record just after we got home so that was kind of where it was we we moved in we had an we shared an apartment all of us just lived in one apartment and there were a couple of bunk beds at, at the uh, practice room too right. and so between us that's kind of where we lived and practiced and did everything um yeah in Lamita. <laughs> that's where we were <laughs> and some of these songs that you brought to the table were they like Van, Impressions, Iceman, etc. Were these riffs that you you brought with you? I mean, some of them clearly have that classical guitar bent to them. A few, yeah, a few of them did. So Carl, Carl and I had been jamming on a sort of incomplete version of In My Van mm -hmm. in Massacre Guys, but oh. it would usually just be the two of us. Like we never, it never developed all the way into a song. Um, I had a very, very brief band in dc called auto da fe um and i wrote Iceman for that and so not the words just it was just an instrumental right and then impressions maybe i had written it somewhere during that time too probably while i was in dc where i was just learning classical guitar mm -hmm. and and so yeah that stuff came with us but what's funny is you know that i i going back to that the three days that we jammed together when I came out to, to join Bill had already written 
Uranus, which was very much in line with some of these other songs right. that we'd already done. So <laughs> I think he kind of went, wow, like some of these weird riffs that I've had floating around, these guys can totally play that stuff. Like mm-hmm. it's, you know, fairly natural to them. So within that first three day rehearse, you know, kind of jam out rehearsal thing that we did to see, you know, whether the band was going to work, we, we did, we played all of those schizophrenia impressions in my van uh uranus coolidge i think the riff of coolidge all of that stuff we had already kind of jammed on it mm-hmm. pretty funny <laughs> that it was like that all logistics and so i think that probably just kind of happened you know i think that was just some dumb riff i was playing and we just kind of <laughs> hooked it up together you can call all logistics something i mean it's pretty funny and we call it that's the you know you've heard the expression hall raker that we use well that one is that one is probably the king of all hall rakers (laughs) (laughs) uh you do this tour you record the album then you decide you're going out on the fine all tour so i'm assuming by the time you book this tour you know that milo's leaving the band when i joined we already knew that Milo was going to be taken off to college. That that was already known. But the idea of of carrying the band on and changing the name and so on that was there from the beginning too. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So Bill had Bill had already you know Bill and Dagnast or sorry Descendants and Dagnasty had already done some shows together. So Bill had already met Dave, seen him, and thought, Hey, Dave, this guy's cool. It might be a, you know might this might work. And so with you know, now that we were sort of set, the three of us, then, then, you know, we approached Dave about singing. And so that, so that was kind of already a known quantity, like basically Milo, you know, we finished up the, the, the final tour, Milo bailed to school. Dave got there like, I don't know, two weeks later or something. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, and we were right, we were right in it just kind of starting, you know, we, we never really stopped. There was yeah. never even really a break, you know? Do you know, like, were you writing all Roy says, you know, on the road or did you wait until Dave was around? No, we were writing it. We already had, I know we would have been jamming on some of those riffs for sure. Maybe Alfredo's and riffs like that. We would, we would have already been using those. And I don't know that they would have, that songs would have been fleshed out necessarily, except I want to say that just perfect was already fleshed out. Mm. I think, I think he, I think Bill had already gotten that one together uh, maybe sugar and spice because sugar and spice. I think there was actually maybe a brief period where they were kind of jamming that in the practice room uh, or at soundcheck um, in descendants. So, you know, that riff had been around a little bit there just at the very end. Um, so, so I, I, I guess like we, we must've had a handful of those songs. And then of course, you know, Dave, you know, whatever Dave wanted to bring to the party too, of course, you know, then, then we, we just sort of dove into it and started learning all of it. And, and it wasn't long before we recorded, um, all Roy says, all Roy says, you know, probably, you know, four months or so later or something. I, I, I keep getting the feeling it was winter and we recorded it and, you know, like Dave got there in maybe September or so when Milo left right around there that I want to say in December, January, we were recording. I yeah. think that's right. Yeah. And then, you know, we went out on tour, you know, in March or something, April, <laughs> you know. It must have been, you know, a little bittersweet for you getting into this band that you just loved and then knowing that this was kind of 
the end of it, or at least that incarnation of the band. It was, it, it was, it, it, it was, but it, it, um, I really felt very, very good about what it was like for, you know, I, I look at that time, I still kind of look at Carl and I as, you know, this kind of pair of dudes who's, you know, got this common background and, and us getting to play with Bill, um, regardless of who was singing, you know, that was kind of pretty awesome for us. You know, that was, we, we definitely felt that there was a, a really strong thing there. And so whatever happened next, it was, you know, I mean, I, I, I think I'm sure in my head, I was going, why the fuck would this guy want to leave, you know, to go get a degree (laughs) or whatever, (laughs) you know, I'm sure, I'm sure some part of me felt that way, Right. but it makes sense. You know, I mean, music, and in a funny way for, you know, music was kind of more of a, I think it was a good thing for Milo to have it as more of a hobby than to try to focus on it. I think as a young person, he was like, what? You like try to make a full go of that? I don't know. That just <laughs> seems weird. Like, I think it was more of a like fun outlet for him. Right. And over the course of time that changed, you know, and so now we find ourselves oddly you know, in the longest stretch of time the band's ever been together active, <laughs> you know, and we're all like, you know, in our mid fifties, right. <laughs> whatever, you know, strange things happen. So now his, his feeling about that is completely different, but at that time, sure. that's what he felt. He, he felt like that was something that he just need, had wanted to pursue. He really was into the science, he really wanted to go study it. So fuck. Okay, cool. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, be where you want to be. That makes pretty good sense. But for Carl and I, we were stoked to, to give it a full go, you yeah. know, with, with Bill and, and we didn't know Dave, um, but you know, we, it worked, we hit it off. Okay. And, you know, just kind of kept working. We just sort of did what we were already doing. <laughs> so, right. um, and it just fell right into place. Now this tour, the final tour, how bare bones was this tour? Like, were you sleeping on floors or like in the van? Or Absolutely. You, you weren't getting hotel oh, rooms? Oh, yeah. We were sleeping on floors and in the van and driving all night. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we would, you know, if there was a day off, maybe we would grab, you know, a room like for everybody so we could all shower, that kind of thing. But no, it was all, you know, our our method then, I mean, we made, you know, five bucks a day or whatever. Right. You know, you know it, was, it was a subsistence level thing. But we were 23, you know, we were we were young. This was the life we wanted to live. We didn't really, we were happy. (laughs) We're happy as a clam with it. You know, there was no, you know, in punk rock still at that time, there was no promise of money. That was not, you know, that was, if you wanted to make money, you go did what Milo did or somebody else did. You didn't, you didn't pursue music. So there was no expectation of anything more than what we were doing. So we were perfectly happy to be doing this the way we were doing it, you know? Um, and so it was very bare bones, just the van a trailer and sleeping on people's floors. You know, we'd made a lot of friends over, over other tours we had done, you know, cause we did a, a tour before the final tour. We had really, we had done an all tour also. So, so that year, 87, we toured like crazy, you know, we toured tons that year. And so, you know, we had friends to stay with and, uh, and so we just, that's kind of what we did, you know? made made five bucks a day and you know just enough to stay fed and and uh keep moving now uh, many of the shows on that final tour i think almost all of them were uh mia was the opening band doughboys on several 
any standout shows from that tour? You know, the funny thing is, for me, there there usually aren't standout shows because I I tended to view things as a as a lifestyle or not not lifestyle, lifestyle is the right word, but it's just like I'm I'm in the middle of this, and so every show is part of the part of the totality. I can remember some I can remember some venues mm-hmm. pretty well from around that time, let's say the Cameo Theater in, in Miami. I can remember that. I can remember, uh, what was that place called? Norwalk, Connecticut. It's kind of, you know, some friends of ours ran this place. Um, I'll come to me in a second. But, you, you know, odd and end places that we played, I can I can remember the venues. But, and, I, and, and funny, I really do remember, well, that last show in um, St. Louis, uh, Mississippi Nights. I remember that show pretty well. The one that you know, that it's been somebody videotaped that show, and it's mm. been floating around for decades. I remember that venue, so it's kind of like I can remember venues, but I don't necessarily remember the shows, uh, you know, individually that much. I see them as a whole, right. I guess. You played with DOA. I have to ask because I'm Canadian. <laughs> and oh, and yeah, there was a there was a riot. Yeah, there was a riot at that show. That was a Metro, right? DOA. <laughs> at the DOA show, DC3, there was... three fire hose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That, that I do remember, <laughs> yeah. I don't remember it being... It's the kind of thing where I was like, it was a riot? Like, I wasn't sure I considered it a riot because maybe I had seen enough in Los Angeles that I didn't look at it that way. Right. <laughs> you know, but apparently there was enough, enough, you know, to shut that show down. But I absolutely do remember that show, partly because we were playing with DOA. Yeah. Who, I, who, you know, we had played, Massacre guys had played with DOA. Like, I like, you know, I like DOA. I love Joey Shithead. He was a good guy. And of course, you know, we were already friends with, with, uh, Des. You know, he sang on, on a, on a few parts on the Descendants All record. Right. Um, and, uh, so, you know, the DC3 guys we were friends with, the Firehose guys we were obviously friends with. Um, mm-hmm. so we did a couple of shows with them surrounding that not with doa but with firehose and dc3 i remember those for sure <laughs> right. so you recorded i guess here's my question a couple of live albums hall raker and liveage came out of this tour did you just record those two shows specifically or did you record a bunch of shows no it was just those two i think you know there was a there was the idea that maybe once every tour or so we should document what we were doing live and what it was like. And so there was a, there was a full show taping at that, at the uh, first Avenue show, um, which is, which is that comprises most of live age. And then there was Berkeley square in, uh, in San Francisco, in San Francisco. We did record both of those, but not anything else. And so those two sort of that, that's where we built those, those two records out of. It was, I think, how did it work? Like, I think we per, we thought that maybe Liveage was better, and and it was later. That's for sure. Yeah. It was more, you know, more after we'd had more time under our belts, and more, you know, more time playing together, more shows under our belt, I should say. And so, Hallraker, I believe, is kind of like half half of it is what we didn't put on Liveage from that show. And then the other half of Hallraker is other stuff from 
Berkeley Square. Right. I, I, my perception of the two records has always been, and I'm, I'm assuming this is the common perception, is that Hallraker was kind of the, the deep cuts and Liveage is the hits. Was that? That's right. Was that a decision yeah, that you guys made? Well, you know, I, I, I don't remember exactly, but it, it, there's something that tells me that we had, that we did Liveage and that we hadn't necessarily planned on doing Hallraker. It wasn't like we went, okay, let's divide this up into two records and make it like this. That, right. that really wasn't what happened. I think it was more of a like, we did Liveage and then later we thought, you know, we, got, we probably got enough stuff to make another record. Hell, maybe we should put that stuff out too. I think it was more of an afterthought than it was a plotted idea. And so it's kind of like, well, here's what, here's what we've got that are decent versions of, of songs that we like and we can make them flow together okay. Do you know how, how it was recorded? 20, I believe there are 24 track. They, would, they were definitely on two-inch reels. So they would have either been 16-track two-inch reels or 24-track two-inch reels. And I don't remember. I don't remember. You know, the funny thing is I was getting into recording, but I was just starting into it. I didn't know that much about gear yet. And so, you know, I knew what a two-inch tape machine was, and I knew that they were common 16-track or two or 24-track machines, but I didn't go out into the trucks for either, which is kind of, now I scratch my head, I'd love to know what the hell those were recorded on, but I have no idea what they were. I don't know. It's credited as engineered live Matt Rector on Liveage anyways. Yes. Well, And that's and that's odd. Okay, so Matt Matt was sort of a, he was our manager. He had been the manager of the band for the last little while at the time that I joined. And so Matt was the manager and he was maybe the manager for the first year or so that we parted ways. Okay. And he did when, when he toured with descendants before I was in the band, he was a jack of all trades. He did front of house sound. He did, you know, the kind of tour management and he booked the shows too. So he was a very full on part of the thing at that time. So, I, it's hard for me to imagine him actively having recorded the stuff. I would have supposed that there would, that the truck would have come with a guy yeah. and maybe Matt and him kind of work together. Like, Oh, they like this sound. You know, they like these kinds of sounds, maybe kind of gave some direction that way. Hard for me to imagine him like just behind the board, but it's not out of the question. Yeah. Maybe that is what happened. Okay. Yeah. It was engineered by Richard Andrews, uh, I'm assuming that's for the mix down in Torrance. That would have been the mix. Yeah, that would have been the mixing. Yeah, because we were using Richard, you know, back then at, at that time. And had been since Enjoy. And then your longtime stage manager uh, and tech, Daniel Bug Snow. Is that him stage right with his shirt off on the cover of this album? Yes, that's correct. That's okay. that's Buggy. Yeah, over there. <laughs> he looks like a Ramon. So when I moved to... When I went out to D.C., originally, I actually went to live with my uncle in Manassas, Virginia, which is right outside of D.C. I went to stay there for the summer um, and sort of just get out of Salt Lake and check out a new, you know, a, a new scene. And while I was, the, I, I didn't live in Manassas long. I, I One day I took a shuttle into D.C. and I fell absolutely in love with that place. And I was just, I was like, fuck, I'm moving here. This is great. I'm not going back to Salt Lake. Why would I? This is awesome. So I stayed but during the little bit of time that I was living in Manassas, I, I went to a shopping mall for whatever reason one day, and I ran into this punk rock kid. And so we're talking, and, and 
I'm, you know, I'm telling them that I'm new here and I just, I just moved, you know, a week or so ago from Salt Lake City. And, and I said, so are there like other punk rock guys living out here? And, and, you know, it's kind of, Manassas was kind of the sticks at that time in a way, you know, right. and so there was that, there actually is a couple of guys and he introduced me to two guys. One of them was Bug, another one was Gooch. Yeah. And so I got introduced to these guys and we hit it off and started hanging out together a lot. They were, they were from a very different world than me because, you know, Bug was a backhoe operator. You know, he was he, a very different, he lived a very different life than I did, but he was really into music. He loved punk rock. And here's a really funny story about one, one night we're driving up to DC in Bug's truck and they've got this tape and they, they said, maybe you can tell us, maybe you'll understand what this thing is. One, they had found this tape somewhere that just said, Milo goes to college. That's all it said on it. Right. And, and they, they go, do you know what this is? And I was like, fuck yes, this is the Descendants. These guys are fucking awesome, right? right. And and so, you know, we're rocking out to the Descendants. You know, we're rocking out to Milo Goes College on our way to go see, you know, some band. And, and I think it was actually Bad Brains, if I remember right. Wow. But anyway, so a year later or whatever, a year and a half later after that, I've joined Descendants. It's that it's that weird, right? And <laughs> Bug, Bug comes to my... Um, to sort of a little bit of a going away party uh, some friends had for me. And he says, hey, I'm going to come out there and be your roadie. And I said, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> and so I didn't think anything of it. But he showed up at my doorstep like two two weeks later wow. <laughs> with his truck. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. And so um, I introduced him to Bill. And this, we're literally packing. We're, we're, we're like two days away from packing the van to go to finish these little, these last few shows from the enjoy tour. Right. right. And so Bill, he, he just went, okay. I mean, you're friends with this guy. I was like, yeah, he's, yeah, he's a great dude. He's a, he's a really good dude. He said, fine. Okay. He can come. And so he hops in the van and he was there for the next 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's just so funny that it worked out like that bug. You know, he was, um, instrumental in our, in our entire thing. He was, he was such an important, part of it all yeah in that bug had practical knowledge of the world that we just didn't have you know <laughs> bug knew how to change the fucking oil or you know do anything that was like you know logical right and he learned how to you know how to he, he couldn't guitar tech and you know, like okay i'm gonna intonate the guitars today and i'm gonna you know do a fret job because you know that wasn't bug's thing but he could set all the shit up by himself and he had a certain showmanship ideal in his head. He was like, no, this is a professional fucking show. Quit, you know, I'm going to set this stuff up. You guys stand over there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fine. And, and there were little things that he did all the way through that, that, um, that really had long, you know, large effects on how the band operated. And he was, you know, he, he may as well have been in the band, you know, for, for all intents and purposes. Um, and we're still friends with him to this day. He's he's not really in. He's had some health. He's taken some hits health wise in his life, and so he's not touring with us anymore. But he, uh, uh, I think, not just maybe a month or so ago, I got a you know text from you know Bugs over at Bug and Bill were hanging out together. You know, so so you know we're still we're still in touch with him. But anyway, so it's kind of a funny. That was just a funny little weird thing that happened. Serendipity um, for sure, <laughs> and absolutely. And then and then Bugs' best friend was Gooch. Gooch Allen is his name. Um, Gooch came out. Gooch was more of a business guy. He, uh, he, he enjoyed the businessy stuff. So he, he did more of the sort of 
tour management kind of stuff and helped keep things organized. And he, he was an organized person and knew how to do that. And he actually really did a pretty good job at, at, at that, you know, for a guy that had no previous experience in the music world. And so, yeah, we had this, this, uh, this cool little crew of dudes from, from Manassas, Virginia. You know? <laughs> He's already got a descendant's nickname. So you are almost have to bring in a guy named Gooch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Buggy and Gucci. Yeah. And they were, and they were, you know, they were great friends together, really really fun together. And so, yeah, that was our, I, I, for the first little while we didn't have Gooch with us. It was just bug on that first little run. But then I think Gooch, he was either on, I know he would have been on the final tour, might've been on the all tour as well. And then he stayed with us, you know, for another year or two. And then he kind of got into having like a real life, you know, with with a real job and (laughs) that kind of thing, you know. You mentioned back in D.C. when you sold all your gear that, uh, you know, you didn't have any. Looks like you and Carl are carrying some serious backline by this point, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's true. We joined, we well, you know, what's funny is when Bug showed up, he brought his he, bug was really into music and he had several pieces of gear that he bought. He made very good money as a backhoe operator. He was, he was living with his mom and his sister, you know, he had expendable income. And so he had bought himself an SVT cabinet and I don't remember what kind of head he had, but then he had, he had, I don't remember what 412 he had either, but he did have this beautiful Marshall super lead 100 head, which is a valuable, very, very cool sounding head. It was totally. great. Yeah. And, um, so when I joined the band, I bought three, I bought two cabinets. I think I bought two cabinets. And then maybe Carl had bought an 810 cabinet. So we ended up having, yeah, two 810 cabinets, three 412 cabinets, and I had my three heads there. So it looks like I have a monumental amount of gear. <laughs> and I suppose to an extent I did have a lot. <laughs> it was kind of a lot. I wouldn't, I don't need, I don't know, you know. I think that was just a holdover from black flag probably <laughs> just mm-hmm. you know that that we take well i should say that you know touring in that time the pas were iffy at best for and sure if the pa was decent the monitor system was really really iffy you know so you you could you could show up and have no monitors whatsoever or only enough for vocals or something like that so so we did used to employ a lot more stage volume in those times um probably more than anybody <laughs> should you know uh, but that was, we had to be ready for that. And and okay. I'd have to say that many, many times that same backline you see in that picture on Liveage got used as the PA system and we'd borrow shit from other people just so we could get a show done. <laughs> that was totally common. <laughs> Not every show was at first half. <laughs> Not even close. Hell no. Yeah. <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All kinds of weird rented spots and that, you know, but that's what, that's what the landscape punk rock was. We knew, you know, we, we expected that and, and tried to sort of prepare for it. And as time went on, we actually, in all, we built a big, nice monitor system and mm. toured with that for a long time. So even if the, you know, if the house PA, whatever resources were around could be used to bolster the house PA, if we brought our own monitors. Yeah. Looks like you're or paying maybe a Les Paul special at that point or something. Yeah, I when I joined the band, I bought this Kramer Beretta, like a like a Strat style, like an Eddie Van Halen style guitar. Right. I went into I went into Guitar Center. I didn't own an electric guitar at the time, so I played a shitload of guitars, and 
I was like, wow, this one plays really good. It's really easy to play. And so I bought it. It didn't have a great sound, though. Um, and I eventually gave that to Frank Nevada. But while I was out on that tour, I bought the, on, on the Descendants All Tour, I think it would have been, I bought that Les Paul Jr., single cut Les Paul Jr., mm-hmm. as a backup. Um, and eventually it became the main guitar. So I guess that's what I used that for that brief time. That was the first Gibson guitar I'd ever owned. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> you know, think about it. What are you up to now, Stefan? I love the new Slaughter recordings. Are we gonna Are we gonna get some more of those? How have you been spending well, quarantine? Well, you know, I so you know we're working on a new Descendants record, and mm-hmm. funny, well, not funny. This has been a fucking tremendously tragic and shitty. Year. <laughs> I mean, yeah. for you know, all in all, of course, but our plan for this year the, in Descendants had been to make a record and take way less shows for this year so the fact that if there was going to be a time for us that you know to have a pandemic i guess this was as good a year as any but we've been working on a new record so that's been kind of the primary focus um i had a little spell of writing a lot of music i don't know what happened there because i'm not normal normally i'm kind of the lesser songwriter for us but i've been cranking out quite a bit of music but none of it i i guess you know the the stuff i've written is not very punk rock and it's not very kind of you know that more funny instrumentally stuff like i like to do with slaughter or whatever it's been more pop songs like not you know more i don't know more fuck matthew sweet or something you know Mm. more more that you know more um, you know my beatles thing is kind of you know been you know, Beatles are my favorite band growing up. So, right. so it's, you know, probably more influenced by that kind of stuff, stuff that, you know, some of it is pretty playable for descendants, but I had already, you know, already written a ton of stuff that went to descendants. So I've just been kind of writing stuff to see if any of it's any good. I don't know. I've been singing some of it, which is, you know, oh, that's cool. not a great, that's not a great scene really, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, it's something I seem to be compelled to do or at least get off my chest. So I could imagine that I might, you know, make a record, at some point, you know, me singing, if I don't end up listening to it and just going, ah, fuck this and just, you know, canning it all. Yeah. I go back and forth every couple of weeks. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll make something out of this. And then I'm like, no, my voice is too shitty. And then I put it back away. <laughs> but it's, so that's kind of back and forth. But, you know, the main focus has been working on Descendants and I've been mixing some records here and there, mastering some stuff here and there. Can you share Descendants plans? Uh, like our, I know the pandemic's kind of put everything on, on hold. I don't know if you're waiting for like, so you can tour again or, or what the plan is as far as like a new Descendants record. Is it just on hold pending the outcome of this pandemic? Well, so things that have happened I are, you know, Milo and I, we, we were having prolific periods, both of us. And so we each wrote and we co-wrote a whole bunch of songs. Those have already been recorded and, and done but Bill and Carl were still working on their songs, and they kind of still are. I think now they're at the stage of demoing them, which is usually just kind of the way we show them to each other to sort of learn them and get them learned. So, and then we'll dive into recording. So the the idea would be to start recording those, which shouldn't take that long, and then and then um, putting the record out. But we don't have we don't have a date planned for that, and we don't have any shows booked at the moment um until we get you know a little 
a little further past this mess, you right. know, but it looks like, you know, maybe with the vaccine out, maybe things are around, you know, rounding the corner and, and we can start to, you know, start to make plans again, even if they're tentative plans that, that go out of ways. But right now, all focus is on just kind of finishing the record and getting it out there and then touring on it. As far uh, unless somebody else has a, has, hasn't told me anything, uh, the, the plan would be to just get that out and then kind of go back to what we've been doing, you right. know, do whatever, 50-ish shows a year or, you know, whatever, however many we can get that are that makes sense to do and can fit in for everybody. So that's kind of it. Just, you know, Carl and Bill are, are working on songs. Milo and I, we're still writing songs, but, um, you know, I think we contributed too many. <laughs> so what you're saying is you're giving me an exclusive scoop here. This is going to be the De- Descendants' first double album. There would probably be enough. There, you know, if if every single thing got recorded, there would probably be enough for a double record, which is funny. But but that was true for Hypercast too. Like we we wrote thirty six songs for Hypercast. Kind of was one and a I, half. Yeah, um, so we yeah. sort of put out one and a half. So you know, I I don't know that there there's no plan specifically to do the same thing again, but I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if it happened. You know, there's usually some odd end other songs that are kind of around for comps or right. whatever. And of course we, we did put out, you know, three songs recently that are kind of from this, this new batch, right. you know, yep. um, Suffered. those were more like, you know, just getting Trump shit off our chest, but now that's kind of <laughs> over. So we can, you know, we can move on to different targets, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Stefan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for, you know, thanks for having me on and, and, um, you know, uh, Stay safe, and and the listeners out there hearing this, I hope you guys are safe, and, and you know that that this is uh, hopefully all of us together are getting to round the corner on this disaster of a year, and you know move on yeah. to bigger and brighter things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right on, thanks, Stefan. All right, thanks so much for being on the show, Stefan. What a great guy and uh, dude. Stefan was so awesome. He just like told us everything that we needed to know from way back when and a deeper dive into the Salt Lake city, uh, scene than I had expected. And, uh, then we covered a bit of it, you know, over the episodes, but nothing like that. So it's so cool to hear about it. Yeah. I still want to know whose pad Carl was at when that fateful phone call came in. We still haven't been able to suss that out. Yeah. So if anybody knows, let us know. I want to know, but just wow man like another one of these crazy stories like henry joining black flag or uh ed from ohio joining firehose yeah stefan is like he's digging deep into the classical guitar and it's like the needle on the record just goes yep nope you're in the descendants (laughs) great that he got that future looks bright ahead tape you have that the yeah. SST Posh Boy cassette. And the Descendants name is misspelled on it too. Yeah. Can you confirm, Ryan, that they are different mixes of Hey Hey, My Dad Sucks, I Like Food, and Wiener Schnitzel? Oh, dude. Uh, can I take that as homework? Please do. Yeah. That is your homework. It, it also has Saccharin Trust on it, The Minutemen, Stains, Black Flag. It's basically got the entire fat EP. It's just missing Mr. Bass on it. Interesting, Ryan, that they knew Dave was joining the band prior to the tour even starting. Smalley. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I mean, 
the thing I liked about that was Stefan's perspective on it. He's like, that's all, that's all good. You know, I get to play with Bill and Carl and, uh, I'm totally into and open to jamming with Dave. Right. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. Cause I mean, how would you know they have like the SST infrastructure behind them, but it may not have worked out a big, big leap of faith. Yep. For sure. Well, it sure did. You want to talk about this record, Ryan? Yeah, man. History lesson part two. So this one for me, Ryan, goes back. This is like, this is the first Descendants record I got. I still have my original cassette. Uh, it's my favorite Descendants release, probably, uh, just for nostalgia reasons. Uh, many of these are my preferred version of these songs over the studio recordings for that reason. Mm. I remember hearing the studio recordings of some of these songs, like the Ologistics, for example, and like, you know, just immediately realizing that I prefer the live version way, way back in the day. There's some cool stuff that Milo does with the melodies that I like on this record better for sure too. Well, I mean, maybe not better in the same way that, you know, this was your, your entry point. But when I listen to the studio versions, and I sing along, I sing the Milo Liveage version. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I love all those little things that he throws in and the way he changes the the vocal patterns and melodies around. Yeah. Uh, coincidentally, my first all record is Trailblazer, and it's probably still my favorite all record too. Mm. Must have been a deal on the live tapes in the bargain <laughs> or something, right? Maybe. Hey, before we go through these tracks, Brent, I'm going to hit you with a quick Spaceman. Oh, cool. Okay, here's the here's the spaceman spieling about Liveage. Here we go. The last blast in the saga of the dents comes in the form of this incredibly bonus live record. Feel the bone-crushing power of the descendants for the last time. If you want it all, this is the first step you will need to make. Now let's go through the tracks. Okay. So as often was the case with SST, the CD and cassette have extra tracks. Yep. Two extra tracks in this case, which are essential. Speaking as a guy who grew up listening to the cassette version of this. Uh, track one, all written by uh, Bill and Pat McCusatin. Uh This is off the record, all. SST 112. Yep. Then we go into right into I'm Not a Loser, a Frank Nevada track off Milo Goes to College. Great way to open the show, assuming that this actually was the show opener. It may not have been, but uh, again, Milo's lyrics, uh, great. All you people, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he starts off the song like with the with the guitar riff intro going, you, and I yeah, yeah. love that part. And this is the yeah. first song where we hear like Stefan and Carl doing Frank and Tony, and they do a, just a killer job. What's one and two? I know what. Track three, Silly Girl, uh, written by Bill, off of I Don't Want to Grow Up. Uh, Carl's backing vocals are a real standout for me. Yeah. Way faster, too. Yeah. Milo's really playing with the melody, too, here. Yeah. I Want to Be a Bear, written by uh, Frank and Tony, off Milo Goes to College. I Don't Want to Smell Your Muff. Yeesh. (laughs) I like it. 
but I kind of miss the the string scratching from Frank's playing on the on the studio version. I always love that. But all right, and Stefan's guitar is a bit more chuggy, which is cool. Track five, Coolidge, written by Carl, off the all record again. Love Carl's backing vocals, uh, and where he chooses to place them. Yeah, like just tossing and turning in my bed. This is for me one of the best Carl songs on the live album where he's he's kind of defining his own style right because he's playing kind of tony songs but then this is like it's still a descendant song but carl is getting his own little vibe going and i love it and that lyric right you can only be a victim if you admit defeat is just like i can't i can't love that line any but anymore it's not possible yeah yeah Track six is The Wiener Schnitzel, written by Bill and Pat off the Fat EP. They changed this one up a little bit. Will that be all? No, all. Yeah, it's technically an unlisted track, because that's from the All album, right? The song No All. True, yep. Technically an unlisted track. Yep, technically. Track seven, I Don't Want to Grow Up, written by Tony off of the album of the same name. I've always preferred this to the to the studio version. It's good, but I want to hear Pervert right after it. That's the problem, you know? Yeah. Like, I love the live version. And I guess that's because I I got into those tracks through the studio album. Yeah. Uh, the next track is Kids, a.k.a. Kids on Coffee, written by Bill off of the Enjoy record. Just a blistering song. Love the time signature stuff in this song. Really great. <laughs> Milo's ending where he just goes, ugh. Yeah. It's the first time we have a track off of Enjoy on the show. Yeah. I have a soft spot for the album Enjoy, too. Oh, yeah. another early, probably the second Descendants I got. Uh, and then speaking of Joy, we've got the song Wendy, written by, of course, of course, Brian Wilson. This is a Beach Boys song. She serves me good food. Hamburgers. Yep. Uh, and then another Enjoy song, uh, a classic written by Milo, like a probably a top five descendant song get the time top 10 for sure yeah they're, and they're the playing on this this particular live version like they're just so on point with this version man wow yeah yeah it's great uh track 11 a song i've always i've always really liked this song descendants written by tony off of i don't want to grow up uh i like how they changed the lyrics just a little bit just because we've gone away, here's a message from me and Bill A. instead of Ray. There's always still that weird mic squeal at the end that makes me twitch a bit. Yeah. And then the reason you need this on CD and cassette is to get one of the bonus tracks, which is hands down my favorite Descendant song of all time, Sour Grapes, written by Doug Carrion and Milo off of the Enjoy record. Love Milo's spiel at the beginning of this. I know Billy Idol says you can dance by yourself, but I'd rather dance with you. Yeah. yeah Riding the crest, so to speak. Just love the song Sour Grapes, man. Then we flip it over and track B1, The Ologistics, written by Bill, Pat, and Stefan off the all record. Love, like, the testifying in this. Get all your other people. Good God. <laughs> Alleluia. Again, prefer it to the studio version. Track two, Myage, written by Bill off Milo Goes to College. This was our ballot result pick for that record. Uh, the first song yeah. Bill ever wrote, 
and it's awesome. Yeah, I never noticed this until this week, but so I've got this on LP and CD. The LP version lists it as myage, one word. The CD version lists it as my age, two words. Hmm. What's it on cassette? Checking. I have to actually pull the cassette out to get a good look at it. Break one, out your monocle. One word. One word. One word? Yeah. So it must be a misprint on the CD, I'm thinking. Yep. Track three, My Dad Sucks, written by Frank and Tony off the Fat EP. Always have time for that song. That's a good one. Yep. Then another song that I just love, Van. Oh, Bill is just insane on this, man. Yeah. Insane. Written He's so by... busy, so busy on the kit. Yeah, written by Car Carl, Milo, and Stefan off the All Record. Uh, interesting fact that Stefan pointed out they jammed this riff in Massacre, guys. Yeah. Love all the riffing that Milo does in this. I can't hear you. And when he's going, I hate it. I hate it. It's smelly. It's dirty. It's my home. <laughs> <sighs> uh, truck 5, Suburban Home, written by Tony off Milo Goes to College. This one has one of my favorite uh, Milo tweaks. I want to be number 56239. Oh, yeah. You can't sing the studio version and not say, I want to be number 56239. This one and the next one, Hope, is for me, Carl laying down some licks of his own design. He's not, he's not going pure Tony. He's going Carl on these tracks, and I love it. Yeah. Song called Hope. Written by Milo, off Milo Goes to College. Uh, our ballot result pick for the Two Things at Once compilation, actually. Yes. And then another ballot result pick is track seven, Clean Sheets, written by Bill. Our pick for the All Record. Great track. And then also essential bonus track is the last one, Pervert. Written by Milo and Tony off of I Don't Want to Grow Up. I'm a pervert. Coochie, coochie, coo. <laughs> oh, boy. So here's the breakdown, Ryan. We've got five songs off Milo Goes to College, five songs off the All Record, two from the Fat EP, four from Enjoy, four from I Don't Want to Grow Up. So 20 songs total spread out fairly evenly across their discography. Hall Raker has four more songs from the all record. So they were basically performing the entire album on this tour, give or take. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just awesome. I never get tired of this. I've heard this record. I've probably heard this record more than any other album on SST other than maybe my war. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that I would, I could say the same thing for it. Probably two things at once. And Probably you're living all over me, and maybe, uh, gosh, I don't know, maybe from Ohio. Those would probably be my top listens of all time. Yeah. What about this uh, concert shot? You were uh, <laughs> ripping with Stefan about their gear, hey? Well, it's awesome. I mean, like, wow. Look at the back line. Oh, I know. That's some Carl's, serious Carl's flag serious. back line. That's what that is. Yeah, they got some serious cabs going on. Whoa. And, like, look at Bill's kit, man. Yeah, pretty minimal. Look at what he does with 
two toms, yeah. right? Yeah. Lots of symbols, but he's only got two toms. It's insane. When you're as good as he is on that snare drum, you don't meet, you don't need a lot of extra hardware. Yeah, very true. Carl's rocking a P bass, my favorite. And uh, that's before he got into G and L's and whatnot for a while there. Looks like he's got dreads. I think I think Stefan and Carl were both both rocking dreads around this time, hey? Yeah, well, Carl was for sure. I wish I could make out what shirt Milo's wearing. It almost looks like unknown or something along the top. Yeah, I was thinking the same or, thing. Or unborn, something. We've got. I want to know what I want to know what that shirt is. We've got this cool drawing of a van with the kind of Descendants crest on the spare tire on the back with the yep. with the bonus cup the the base master general a van and a roll of toilet paper for use in the trailblazer yeah that was a drawing by carl of stefan apparently his crazed look while he's driving ah. and then that morphed into the uh, the all mascot all roy oh okay happiness is questing all it says on the license plate yeah. Hit me with some dead wax, Ryan. All right. So side A on Descendants Liavage says, Look, Mom, no more halfway. I don't get the reference there, but side B says, Just perfect. There you go. Confirming what Stefan told us in the interview, that that was indeed something they maybe jammed in the Descendants. Yeah. I always love when I hear um, Milo doing an all song or one of the all singers doing a descendant song. I always love any of that. Yeah. All too. of it. Me yeah. Too. Like that. Um, what's the what's the live descendants live all double CD? Is it just live? Um, but they both kind of do a, a track of each other's. And I love that yeah. one. Yeah. Ballot result. Ballot result. Can we do it? I think I want it all. Ah, it's called Live Plus One. Ah, That's the live one. That's yeah. the one I meant. Well, Ryan, we've still got Hall Raker coming. Yeah. We've got Enjoy. We're going to see the Fat EP one more time. And then we've got Summary. And that's it. So hmm. we've got a lot of great songs to try and fit in with only five episodes left with The Descendants. Unless I'm missing something. Well, my picks would be Silly Girl, Coolidge, Kids on Coffee, Wendy, Get the Time, Descendants, Sour Grapes, Ologistics, or Van. <laughs> so half the record? Pretty much, yep. And I mean, yeah, there's yeah. other good songs on here too, like My Edge Hopes, Clean Sheets that we've already put in. So Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, you should pick. This one is like part of your DNA. Well, here's my deal. I already know we're probably going to want to put in Get the Time when we get to enjoy. enjoy. Yeah, I was already thinking that. So I got to I gotta get my sour grapes in there because I, I just love that song. And I probably like this better than the studio version, although the studio version is really great too. Yeah, they're both great. That's a done deal, sour grapes. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Stefan for being on the show. And thanks to Milo for helping make it happen, actually. Yeah, qua qua. Yeah. All right, Ryan, what's next week? 
Next week, Brent, we've got a first timer. It's These Immortal Souls with SST-164, the Get Lost, Don't Lie LP. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, Harry Howard's on the show. Nice. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.